Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss Volodymyr Zelensky's speech to the World Economic Forum's annual meeting at Davos, look at the impact of mounting Russian casualties, and get the lowdown on the new Terminator tank Russia says it has deployed in the Donbass. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 23rd of May, day 89. And today I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the battlefront. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been uh, another weekend of artillery duels in the Donbass. That seems to be Russia's main effort at the moment, possibly their only effort. And they've uh, I mean, the Russian Defence Ministry have put out this this statement that that is so rich on detail. It 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 makes me uh, makes me question the accuracy. But then maybe that's just me. They put out this 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 thing saying that over the weekend, uh, the Russian artillery has hit 73 command posts, 578 areas where troops and equipment have been massing, 37 artillery and mortar positions in a in a, a firing in a position to fire, um, and uh, uh, air defence systems and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It goes on and on and on. I mean, it's a bit in the in the sort of zone of Salisbury having a 123 meter spire. It's so specific; it just makes me think more if it's gone into preparing the PowerPoint presentation for the. For the boss, rather than actually fighting in the Donbass, but I mean, there, there has been—I don't mean to make light of the of the violence in the Donbass, but I just—I think we should just treat. You should always treat all the, all figures um, with a certain degree of of scepticism. It's very confusing in war. The first casualties are, are invariably sorry. The first the figures, casualty numbers, or any other figures are invariably wrong. So treat them all with a with a degree of scepticism at the best of times. And I think when um, when the Russian offensive has if not stalled, then every every small uh, mile advantage they are gaining, it, it comes at a huge cost in terms of personnel and equipment. I think we should just just be a little bit cute at not not drinking the Kool Aid and, and uh, buying into these figures too much. But it's been very violent, very violent in the in the Donbass. Elsewhere, just just to note, 
uh, this morning, just in the last hour, we've we've heard that the um, the Russian soldier um, Vadim Shishimarin, 21 year old guy in a, in a tank unit, he was he's, he's been on trial for the um, for killing the 62 year old Ukrainian man in the, in on February the 28th. He's been found guilty and uh, sentenced to life imprisonment. So there, there will undoubtedly be fallout from that. Um, he had he had pled guilty uh, to killing Alexander Shelopov, and but it said it, he was he was acting under orders and he'd been told to do so because um, Mr. Shelopov had been on his on his phone and it was deemed that he might be you know, reporting on their position or for whatever reason. Anyway, he was found guilty of murder and uh, sentenced to life imprisonment. Other than that, uh, President Zelensky is speaking now in Davos. I think France is going to speak to us a little bit uh, more on that. And uh, there's more uh, more fallout over the New York Times article to discussing. Um, uh, what the future should be for this war and uh, and Kiev's approach to any negotiations. Uh, but, but more of that in a minute. Thanks, Dom. Um, yes, let's go to the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in uh, in Davos. It's postponed from January. Usually it's in January. Now it's in May, I think, because of coronavirus. Um, President Volodymyr Zelensky has appeared there to address uh, address the, the World Economic Forum by video link. Uh, Francis, what did he say? What, 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 what new things has he said that we, we can comment on? Good afternoon, everyone. And yes, you're right that, we, that uh, President Zelensky has been speaking in, in, in the last few minutes. Um, and so all of this is, is, is still being analysed carefully um, by, by commentators, including ourselves. But uh, essentially, there are several key um, messages that, that, that were coming out of this. I think probably the most interesting one is, first of all, about the vision that President Zelensky is trying to um, sell of his country post the war. And I think already it's interesting, isn't it, that, that uh, President Zelensky is talking about uh, uh, what his country it seeks to be long term. Um, I don't think we would have necessarily been in that situation um, when the war began. Um, obviously, we're almost three months in now. Um, so that in itself is an interesting development. But one of the big uh, and one of the big uh, things that he's he's talked about in relation to this vision is, is is talking about foreign investment. He says that it will require substantial investment in order to rebuild. But also, it's clear that he's articulating a, a vision of Ukraine that that is clearly more less leaning more towards the West, unsurprisingly. And he says he wants to create the conditions uh, where people and businesses aren't afraid to exist and thrive in Ukraine. Um, and he says that he wants it to be a modern state and up to with an up to date defense system, modern multiple photo defense and security, and a cooperative defense of arrangements with countries that we respect. So clearly, laying out uh, some groundwork here for for a vision of a of a of a, of a very uh, a, a Ukraine that's heavily tied to um, to sort of Western capitalism, but uh, also, and I think this is perhaps the most revealing aspect of the um of what he said in, in terms of, of, of revealing his inner frustrations um is he talks about how the war could have been prevented if the west had acted sooner to impose sanctions so um he says oh, we're, we're grateful and this is a quote we're grateful for this support but if it had happened back then would russia have started this full-scale war i'm sure the answer to this question is also no and he says that he called for that he's now calling for maximum sanctions, calling for a Russian oil embargo and sanctions on all the banks, and saying there should be no trade with Russia at all. So uh, clearly, a very impassioned repeal, as uh, appeal as we would expect from Pre- President Zelensky. Um, but I'm sure there'll be a lot of fallout um, that will come from this um, in, in the coming in the coming hours. Just one other thing, I would just highlight when in, in the context of Davos, there's been some very interesting analysis coming out of, of interviews that have been taking place with senior 
business leaders um, present at the uh, at the um, uh, at the Congress, and um, they have been saying effectively this is the the end of the era of, of globalization as it's been understood in, in, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So effectively, this idea that um, we were on a, a, a path of, 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 of a closer, more closely integrated world where um, liber- liber- liberalism and democracy was slowly spreading around and this would be precipitated by, by, uh, by capitalist forces is now over, was seen as being naive. You know, essentially it's, it's putting the nail in the coffin, uh, coffin to Francis Fukuyama's uh, end of history thesis and effectively saying that uh that, that, that this 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 era is ending and that the the world's economic strategy must be adapted accordingly as uh, there's a prior prioritizing of energy security and of course food security but we'll come on to that later on but I'll pause there thanks thanks very much for that um Francis there's also an interesting story I think Francis we should pick up on it was our front page yesterday in the Telegraph um to do with, and I know we've spoken about this on the podcast recently, um, the production of uh, grain and how in the UK uh, there's a plan to uh, increase um, the supply of gene-edited crops in the wake of the conflict in Ukraine. Can you talk about this and um, what, what, what relevance does, does, does that have? Yes, well, as part of this, uh, this sort of, since the war began, there has been profound questions, obviously, as I say, asked about energy security, but also food security. Ukraine, obviously known as being the, the breadbasket of Europe, its traditional role in providing grain and other um, vital supplies for, for food production. This is having big ramifications, by the way, not only in Europe, but um, in Africa as well, um, uh, where already there are obviously serious issues around food supplies um, in, in, in recent years. Um, so uh, as a consequence of this, there's now much more of a return to, to thinking about uh, what it would mean where you are not as reliant on other nations such as Russia or Ukraine or anywhere that might be destabilized long term. And as part of this is a renewal of investment in, in gene editing. This is something that, that Britain um, has always actually been a pioneer at, but puts in, to some extent the argument goes that, that the government uh, have said is that the Brexit before Brexit, its hands were sort of tied due to EU regulation. But now, as a consequence of Brexit, the the, the hope is that they will be able to um, guarantee British food supplies in the wake of the conflict in Ukraine, not only through uh, a sort of uh, thinking more deeply about food security, but also by investing in these gene edited crops. Now, of course, gene editing has actually been quite controversial in the past, but I think that this is showing that, uh, you know, from, from, as they say, the old political mantra, from chaos springs opportunity. And of course, um, the war has meant this has now become a priority. Um, and so there's there, there are renewed efforts in the space. And I would point people to to read a very interesting piece of analysis we've got. Um, it was published in, in the paper on um, Sunday, I believe, um, by Matt Ridley. Um, but it will also be online, which talks about more broadly about the importance of of, of, of gene editing in crops and, and, and why it's important. So this will be an, another big priority, I'm sure, being discussed at Davos. But I just wanted to ask, David, because I know that you used to work behind the scenes at Davos. So um, what, what insights can you offer? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot here, but what insights can you offer from how things actually operate there and, and what, what is likely to be being discussed? Yes. So the context of this is I was in the media team there for three and a half years. So I did three Davoses. I worked on on three of the annual meetings, um, usually behind the camera interviewing people for for the social media videos, essentially, of the World Economic Forum. Um, 
I would say the the interesting things that 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 spring out of what we're seeing so far in, in in this week is that well, first of all, you've got to understand that there are there's sort of two Davoses. There's there's the official invite only a conference center where you need a you know, top level pass, and that's for the events run by the forum itself. So that's you know so. So Vladimir Zelensky will be speaking to the Congress Hall for, for, the, for those invitees. And there are numerous other, there are, there are absolutely loads of other speakers, other um, events inside the Congress Hall. Outside the Congress Hall, it's a different story. It's often where um, companies and countries will sort of set up their stalls. So you have different um, countries will, will um, run their sort of, well, you have like Russia House or Ukraine House or the United Kingdom might rent the front of a shop and, and show off its, it, it, you know, attract investment and host parties and so on. That, that's not official Davos. That's a bit different. So you can see, so you, when, when I was working there, Russia House was very big. It was very close to the Congress Centre. It would host lots of evenings, lots of soirees, lots of free vodka. Um, the Russia House is not a thing this year. It's 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 somebody has got together and they've they've done a Russian war crimes house instead. So you do get a sense within the Congress Hall of the incredible support for Ukraine. I mean, the, the forum came out to publicly support and show solidarity with Ukraine. I think on the twenty seventh of February, so just a, f- a few days after the war began, um, which is relatively unusual, I think, for the forum to take such a, a, a strong position on on something like this. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't do so for for other big international issues sometimes. Um, and, and then outside the Congress Centre, in the in the more business orientated sort of not the hangers on as such, but the businesses and the execs who go to Davos just to be there, you can also see that. So as I said, the absence of the Russia House and its replacement with the Russia War Crimes House. So I think you can see you can sort of see the mood music and how that's playing. I mean, both Klitschko's are there, I think, as well. They, they've gone to the to Congress and are giving a, a session. Um, inside inside the inside the, the congress center as well so there's a huge ukrainian presence and of course zero russian presence at all so i think there, there are some interesting things over, over this week to, to bear in mind that those would be my thoughts anyway yeah sorry i mean bear with a small brain so i'm not i'm not intricately involved with that i never never have been don't really understand how, how it works etc cetera, etc cetera. so basically for both of you what can you point to to, to show me it, its value i mean davos gets gets bashed every year for having bono turn up and all, all the rest of it and it's all a, you know it's, it's written off as a as a just just part of the part of the circuit for people to turn up to but you know I, i'm not that naive that i can't think that that there would be there'd be some benefit to it but what what can we what can you show me out, outside of the, the sort of deep policy sphere that um that, that might be readily apparent, but but what can you show me as a, as a sort of lay member of global society? Show me what the, the value of Davos, please, guys. Well, that's that's the question I think my former colleagues grapple with and explain try to explain every single day. I would say very quickly that you have a week in the year where almost everybody who's incredibly important from uh, in economic sense, in terms of leaders of business. Um, you know, top scientists, uh, policymakers from around the world are actually in the same place. So they get to talk to each other, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes in a group. They get actually they get to meet each other and see each other in the flesh and talk about the world and what they want to do. Um, that, that connection and that proximity, I think, is, is the selling point of Davos. I mean, from a business perspective, you know, if you're an exec, you can go to Davos and you can do more business there in a couple of days than you would in, in weeks, you know, rather than rather than flying around the world and going to all of your different offices. Suddenly, you know, you can make sure the CEOs you want to connect with are just in the same place. And I think it's that same logic does operate for political leaders as well. I mean, it kind of 
sometimes pe- people use it to announce their new policy change. So, you know, Xi Jinping goes there, he says certain things, and it's supposed to show what China is. Joe Biden or you know, Trump, for example, the other, the other year went, and, that, and, and it's used as a, as a podium. Zelensky's going there because he knows that all the people in the world, all the big policymakers and business people and so on, are watching him quite closely. So it's for him, potentially, it's, it's another way of spreading his message. Okay, thank you. I get that. Um, In which case, if this is one step to the side of politics, then do you think it's wise to exclude Russia? Because if this if if a large part of what might unseat Putin or at least make him think again is the money, is the oligarchs around him saying, look, fella, we've we've had enough of this. We need to you need to move things on a bit. You know, surely that's where you want to have a Russia house. It's great that there's a Russia war crimes house, but. Do you not do you not want Russia there to take some of these messages back through through the medium of money? Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Um, that would have been if there was internal debate over whether to suspend Russia from Davos and when it when, when they did. That would have been the argument against um, that as a forum, its job is to try and convene people from every background. Um, I'm. As I said, I was a relative, relatively lowly grunt member of the team, so we'd, we'd probably have to speak to somebody from the forum to get their take on that. I know we have our reporter Tom Reese out there, so I'll try and call him before the end of the week for the podcast to get his take on the forum's attitude and, and what's actually happening in Davos. Um, Francis, do you want to jump in? Well, I would just say one other thought on, on, on Davos and its significance. What, what, the, the question that, um, that Don was just mentioning there is, of course, very relevant as well in the context of, of the United Nations, which is, as there were obviously as we've spoken about many times, there were calls for um, Russia to potentially be removed from uh, its permanent seat at the Security Council as a consequence of this. Now, you know, uh, uh, why uh, the argument being that why, how should one have a seat at the Security Council when you are invading a sovereign democratic nation? Um, perfectly valid point. And I think there'll be many people who would agree with that stance. But of course, the challenge of this is that um, what would be the point in doing so when the, the function of, of the United Nations, however inefficient and, 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 um, flawed one could argue it is um what is the point of it if you don't actually have all of the key players in the room that is its central purpose is and a lot of as at davos there's a lot of backroom conversations a lot of relationships that are formed um between diplomats that can have you know big ramifications ultimately politics is a people game um and we elect politicians to represent us and those relationships that are formed in back rooms you know over a drink or two can be have huge geopolitical significance and so um i think that that is one of the functions of davos however uncomfortable it may make us feel as as democratic uh, as democratic people it, it serves an important purpose and you know um we don't know some of the, how important some of these relationships that have been forged right now are but with ukraine being at the forefront that's bound to have significant implications long term thank you francis and thank you dom let's move on now to uh the outrage caused in kiev by an editorial in the new york times i thought it'd be interesting to talk about because it's as we said it's caused a lot of outrage but i want to ask whether it had a point what was it arguing um why are so many ukrainians upset by this uh francis do you want to take this Sure. Well, um, it's a very interesting um, opinion piece in the New York Times. I'll, I'll condense it briefly because uh, it's quite a it's quite a long um, piece of analysis. But if, essentially, it's asking asking isn't the inevitable outcome of this war a compromise that preserves Ukrainian sovereignty but cedes Russia some territory? And if so, shouldn't the West push Kiev to accept that reality? before more lives are lost. So I'll I'll read you a quote from the editorial. It says, 
quote, a decisive military victory for Ukraine over Russia in which Ukraine regains all the territory Russia has seized since 2014 is not a realistic goal, in the opinion of the newspaper. Ultimately, quote, it will be Ukrainian leaders who will have to make the painful territorial decisions that any compromise will demand. Now, as one can expect, this has caused considerable consternation amongst the Ukrainians because as the war has gone on, their policy has shifted. And of course, Vladimir Zelensky has very openly said that he would not be willing to cede any territory whilst he is president. And that would include, we assume, Crimea. Indeed, that has it's been a suggestion directly from him um, that, that he would uh, not be willing to, to uh, um, uh, secede demands for, for to, to have Crimea returned. Obviously, it was annexed by Russia in 2014. So um, th- this has... Uh, as you say, cause considerable um, frustration. Um, of course, on this podcast, we've spoken many times about this very issue. And I began, I remember perhaps two months ago, so only a month into the war, we talked about this very issue because it seemed as if this may well be something not, not only favours the, uh, the, 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 the Russians, in a sense, by offering this off-ramp, but also uh, perhaps the Ukrainians, because they can lose some of the territory which has caused them issues in the past in terms of stability uh, and other things. Now, um, of course, I, I, there's two things I would, I would first I would say about that. The first thing, uh, as a critique of the New York Times' argument, is that this seems this idea that Russia is now going to be trapped in a long term attritional war does not seem to be the view of most experts. I'll be interested to hear Dom's take on this because of this idea of a culmination point where ultimately the military effectiveness of the Russian army will be so severely diminished, perhaps within as short a period of time as three weeks. Um, because of the attrition weights that we've talked about um, in this podcast in the past, that it will not be able to continue to fight and it'll be operationally um, successful. And as a consequence of that, the war will not be able to be prolonged. So in that sense, this this sort of assumption that, that the war is, is just going to go on and on for years um, would seem flawed, I would argue, in the, in the New York Times. Um, in the New York Times is analysis the other thing i would flag though um it, that's that's relevant to this to this question uh, of, of of the, the sort of the long term strategy for for handling ukraine is that this and this is, i think is where the new york times is actually onto something is this idea um that it is actually showing the tensions now within nato and i'm we're going to publish a piece, um, I think probably this evening, but it'll be certainly in tomorrow's newspaper by Douglas Murray, obviously a well-known commentator. And he'll basically be arguing that in defeat, Putin is exploding the myth of, of NATO unity because, you know, he has now effectively been humiliated by this war. But we're already sorting, starting to see several groups form, whether it be the Germans, the French, who want some kind of status quo as before the war to be returned, perhaps, you know, um, uh, with with some rebuilding of relations with Russia. Then, of course, you've got Poland and, and Britain that want to see an outright victory achieved again that would stop any further, further Russian expansion and potentially even um, to, to lead to a, to, to a, to a de, uh, to sort of dethroning of, of uh, 
of Putin. So these tension lines are beginning to be to be formulated here, and 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 I think that 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 this is something that will be now defining the conflict, uh, the the conflict uh, long longer term. And of course, and one other thing that's just I think related to to both of these points is what Biden was saying. Um, in he's in Tokyo at the moment, and he said that now the U.S. would intervene militarily to defend Taiwan in in a future incursion by China. And if that's true, that is a very very serious step forward into this more assertive foreign policy stance um, 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 that, than, than, that America has offered previously and may be seen as a reaction to what has see, been seen as a successful containment policy, as would have been more commonplace, um, uh, operated by America during the Cold War. So that, again, is very, very, um, very interesting as well. Um, and uh, I think is suggestive of, of as I say, some of the tensions that are within place in NATO about now the broader geopolitical strategy that Ukraine has, has, has uh, is offering. But as I say, very interested to hear Dom's take. I've, I know I'm conscious I've spoken a lot there. I'm very interested to hear Dom's take on this idea around attrition rates and whether Russia, whether a long war in Ukraine is actually feasible for the Russian state. I, I mean, my view is that, yes, I think it is. I think it is feasible. There's been a long war there since 2014. The line was obviously further to the east and it didn't, didn't include the south. But um, but that that line of control, as, as has been uh, as it's called, I mean, that's been there since the since the invasion in 2014. And it's not been static. I mean, there, there have been since then, since 2014, 11,000 Ukrainian people killed, mostly service personnel, but a lot of civilians as well along the line of control. So it's been not. It, sorry, whilst the line has been static, it's been it has not been inactive. So. I think it is possible that 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 could continue that that um, model of a large chunk of Ukrainian territory held by Russia or Russian separatist forces for some time to come. Because if Russia, Russia have shown that they can't they can't push further east. They tried it in the north and Kiev, and, and they've, they've just not been able to. And there have been no signs that they've they've learnt from their from their mistakes. I mean, they, they simply don't have. A, a learning culture in the Russian military, but on, on this evidence, a learning culture is one that you, you look back at, at successes and and failures, um, your setbacks as, as well as the bits you've done right, and you pull the lessons out of them. And then, I mean, to in a, in a rare moment of self reflection, the British military has start, stopped talking about uh, lessons learned. They now talk about lessons identified because it's one thing to identify a lesson; it's quite another thing to learn from it. But until you've actually pulled those lessons out of the setbacks and the successes, and that has led to to behavioural change or at least organisational change, then you haven't learned from it. You've just sort of admired it and moved on. And Russia have just shown that they've not They've not done that. Okay, they're in contact with Ukraine, and it's always hard to to try and tie up one boxing glove with your teeth while the other boxing glove's trying to punch the other bloke in the face. So it's difficult to transform when you're in contact. It took the British Army or the Western uh, Western forces three years to do it in the First World War, and so they managed to, to develop it into in 2018 and then roll roll over to the east. It's very very hard to do in contact with the enemy, but. Yeah, this is Russian army. We thought we were talking about. They they should have been should have been able to do this, and yet what they've managed to do in in the Donbass, they're only able to do this combined arms manoeuvre. So knitting together all the different parts of a military force, the infantry with the tanks, with the engineers and the artillery and the air and all the rest of it. They've only been able to do that on, on very very small level, small tactical actions. They're making these small incremental advances. They've not been able to close that that last sort of pocket, that, that salient around Severnetsk. Um, we've seen the trouble they've had trying to get over the river there. So this is this is not a learning culture in the in the Russian military. Um, and therefore, I can't see any 
huge breakthroughs in the near future. There have been reports that Russia is going on to the uh, transitioning to the to the defensive. The military term is culminated. So cu- culmination is where you where you can no longer um, continue your, your offensive action. You, you're not necessarily going backwards, but you just you can't keep the fight going anymore. You're exhausted. Your equipment's broken, so on and so forth. You might be running out of money, running out of international allies, and so on and so forth. So it looks like Russia is approaching the point of culmination. But that means they're going to transition into a defensive posture. If they're already digging in and and laying literally laying concrete into into you know, big defensive positions, then this this ratio we talk about in military terms of, of an attacker needs a three to one advantage very, very generally, three to one advantage over a defender in order to succeed. That ratio goes through the roof when you get into urban combat, at least five to one more, more undoubtedly, I think, given the given the, the current weapons. So Russia at the moment have not been able to, to do that. They've not been able to get the, the combined arms manoeuvre thing going. They've not been able to get the ratio of three to one. Uh, and, and so they are culminating. If they go on to the defensive, then, of course, it's going to have to be, it's going to be Ukraine who will then have to mass that three to one advantage if they want to push Russia back. And I don't think they can do that, even with the with all the, the support from the West in terms of equipment. You know, equipment does not a military make on its own. So I can I can easily foresee that this just grinds into some horrendous attritional battle along a new line of control, basically where the where the line is now. And I can see that enduring well and, until the next big event. I mean if the first one endured since 2014 to now and this was the next big event i mean it, do, it doesn't augur well for the future but i can see very easily that that it does sort of just just bake in to where it is at the moment now so, so i don't think it, i don't think it's wrong at all to to suggest that that might be um that might be the future what i think the new york times article has done very interestingly is it is it's put this up for debate and i, I can't to, to be honest the the jury in my head is out on this one i don't know if this was this this piece of um this editorial was a bit of uh, sort of bit of mischief mischief making or or just throwing some some thoughts out there or if it was actually very very clever and it, and it's it's popping up these ideas for to be backed up by others and let me explain that so at the moment Ukraine after the after the welcome surprise that it was it stayed in the fight after 72 hours when when it, I mean first and foremost Russia thought they were going to knock them out in the first 72 hours um, Ukraine managed to hang in there and then this 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 body from the West has finally come together reluctantly in some areas which we've discussed many many times but this 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 sort of Western um, performance has, has finally rocked up and is supplying uh, first of all a lot of money. Um, mostly from the White House, uh, but also a lot of a lot of equipment and training and all, and all the other bits and pieces. Now, as we've said before, each and each and every bit of that, each gun you send, each bit of money you send, each each humanitarian aid package you send, has political risk attached to it. And we've we've discussed in the past how how some countries might feel reluctant to take that political risk. Why would uh, why would you want to send uh, to, uh, some S three hundred air defence systems if if Russia are eventually going to win? Then they're going to remember that. Why would you send companies or two companies worth or however many T seventy twos if you think you're, you're eventually going to be on the wrong side? So this effort from the West has only managed to, to hold together because each country, you know, metaphorically, has looked left and right and gone. You with me? You with me? You're, yeah, okay, right. Let's go. Let's do it together. And as soon as you start eroding that level of confidence, such that you're not sure that the country to the left and right of you is actually going to is going to be there for you, then 
I can I can see some members of the alliance thinking, oh, do I you know do I really want to take this risk with this uh, this fancy new weapon, or do I want to be too overt in my expressions of disgust for what Russia have done in case they come out on top? And and where I think this article, like I say, I can't tell if it was mischief or if it's an act of brilliance. This article has now given the space to people, such as the the. the um, uh, the Polish leader yesterday speaking in the Ukrainian parliament to overtly say we're in it for the long haul. We are we are here. We're not going anywhere. And I think it's up for others to do the same. Um, now, of course, Putin will be very quick to point out any any fissures in that uh, in that model, any any cracks. Um, uh, there's always this idea that what, is it attention or is it the healthy debate in NATO or in the Western alliance? And what we might see is healthy debate. And, and it's good that people can voice different opinions and we can talk about it and, and carry our populations and societies with us. Putin will go, aha, there you go. That you're, you're not fully, fully in support. Let's uh, let's attack that. The Western alliance is crumbling, etc., etc. So we've got to be careful about this, this tension versus healthy debate idea. But I do think that an article like this, uh, would uh, might give succor to those that would that would look for an easy way out. Th- those that don't maybe not have the full confidence to to go the distance, or people that want to want to try and make make more of that than than is is actually the case. And so I say, if if others now come out and I don't denounce the article, it's perfect, perfectly good article, it's perfectly sensible um, ideas that are being that are being thrown up and invited to critique. But I think it's now up to Western leaders to um, pick, pick a side and, and explain their reasoning. But just come back on, on, on one thing that you said there, Dom, because just genuinely I'm very interested in this, in this idea about the sort of whether this could become a, a long-term attritional war. You were talking about 2014 and, and how you know, the war has essentially been going on since then, officially since the annexation of Crimea. But are we not in a different place now? Are we not in a situation where if the West really were to get behind Ukraine and say and, 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 and agree with Zelensky that, 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 that there cannot be any, ter- any perceived territorial gain from the Russians, not only from what they, what, when they started on February 24th, but even from prior to that, um, if we really got behind them, do you really think that the, the Russian arm, with the Russian army's weaknesses that, that we've now seen in, in the last three months... Um, that, that it would be possible for them to hold on to territory. I, I'm I, I'm just interested genuinely. I'm not I'm not positing a view there, but it seems to me that we're in a very very different place than 2014. Not least in the weaponry now that the Ukrainians have and the financial support and everything else. And I just wonder that if the will is there in the West, and if the will is there certainly from the Ukrainian United People behind Zelensky, that I, I cannot see that this war perhaps would be able to go on for that long. But perhaps I'm wrong. Um, no, I mean, I, I don't think the two thoughts are mutually exclusive. I mean, I, I said that that since 2014, that was a, that was an une, uneven and, and unhelpful uh, pause in the, in the conflict until a major event happened, and we are now living through that that major event. I can I I can see that yes, if the, if the Western Alliance do stick together and continue to support and train uh, Ukrainian forces, then they could prevail. That support and train is going to take a very, very long time in order to to build a military force the size which I think you're going to need to, if you wanted to eject Russian forces out of the whole of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. So what I'm suggesting is in the in the in the, the I mean it's easy to say in some short short medium long term blah blah blah. But you know I think in in the medium term, which I would say is out to a year, eighteen months ish, I can see it. I can see it very easily 
settling down, I remember this phrase because nothing will be settled about it, but but sticking into where, where the lines are now. And that major future event could well be a newly restructured, newly re- reformed and trained and equipped Ukrainian army um, pushing them out. That might be the fight to come in a few years' time. So, no, I don't, I don't think the two are, are mutually exclusive. I think it will, it will gr- grind down to a horrible attritional battle along a new line of control. But there is always a possibility that the Russian army fractures and, and, and just simply... It's burned through so many of its tanks, and the stuff that it's pulling in now is old. And um, I mean, you only have to look at all the turret, the T seventy two turret throwing competition that is still going on to this day. A lot of these turrets are landing with their ERA still intact, the explosive reactive armor, these big blocks on the outside that are designed to, uh, when an incoming round hits the tank, they are designed to explode to push physically push the round away to try and protect the protect the turret. I haven't seen any ERA blocks been uh, going off, and that sort of speaks of. They're either old, unserviceable. It's all been it's all been traded away with in, in corruption and, and what have you. So I think the equipment that's coming online now is just not it's just not up to it. So it could very easily fracture, and then there might be some ma- massive and very very sudden reversal in this in this war. Um, we again we have spoken before on this podcast about well, what does that mean? Is that the moment we, we talk about Putin? If his back's against the wall, would he resort to weapons of mass destruction? That that might be it. if he suddenly seizes his his um, supply lines. Let's say in the north, it, it, Ukraine have done very well at pushing Russia back from Kharkiv um, to the north and east of Kharkiv, back to the Russian border in some places. If there was a sudden fracture and they accelerated you know, 50, 60 k's to the east, cut off those supply lines coming down from Russia, and were able to hold that territory, whilst at the same time maybe making a breakthrough. Uh, in Hezon towards uh, towards Crimea, then you might find that 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 it, it just suddenly implodes like that, and that might bring on a whole a whole another set of questions about how does Putin then react. I, I I think that is possible, certainly in the north. I think that is possible, but I think it's more likely to to bed in to a to a long, hard, horrific, grinding war of attrition. But hey, I've been wrong about many many things across many many years. So uh, yeah, but I, I, that's where I, that's where I'd be thinking is going. Just one more thing, David, um, before um, we move on, on just on this New York Times piece. I mean, as I say, I think it, it captures many of the tensions within NATO quite well that we've seen, of course, since the conflict began about these different perspectives that I was talking about earlier on, whether it be between France, Germany, Poland, Britain, America, um, etc. But we're always talking about on this podcast, and, and I think in terms of uh, often analysts and politicians about this perception of victory or perception of defeat um, from the Russian perspective and how significant that is. You know, we, we've, we've talked many, many times about this idea of like, you know, can Putin be a allowed to be perceived to have won this war. And I just read an interesting comment by Timothy Snyder, who's the professor of history at Yale, who, who, who just made this observation, which is that we can talk about, we have to talk about that perception in two different ways. We have to talk about it from perception globally from those, of course, who, who you know, surely like uh, we are now sharing information, the analysis that we receive and sharing it freely and democratically. And we can see that, you know, in many, many ways, this has been a disaster for Putin, not least in terms of um, Sweden and uh, and Finland now joining NATO and the way in which it has unified Russia's, uh, Russia's foes, etc. So in that sense, of course, his perception has been 
um, a, a big uh, uh, failing. But um, the, the, the the observation um, by Professor Snyder is that actually it's quite senseless to talk about this perception and this idea of needing to give Putin an off-ramp from the perspective of his own people when we forget just the extent to which Putin is completely in control of 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 uh, of the of the of the propaganda machine and the virtual world in Russia. I mean, he basically says that Putin's power over the media will be complete until the moment it ceases entirely, and there is no sign that um, it is going to cease entirely any time soon. So essentially, he argues that this whole idea of Western foreign policy saying we need to give Putin an off-ramp so that he can save face is wrong. He doesn't need an off-ramp because he's only trying to appeal to his own people and he has them locked in. Um, now, I'm not saying I would necessarily agree with that. I think that, that, you know, the truth will always out. In theory, the Soviet Union was watertight intellectually and, and, and that people were, 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 there was no free sharing of information. But of course, the Russian people knew the truth. And so when um, the system started to rot from within, it was very quickly um, able to, to, to fall down and people were, many people were, were, were happy to be free of that system, not least countries, of course, that were in theory behind the Iron Curtain against their will. But as I say, I think it's a, a, a worthy point, this, that if we're talking about giving Putin this off-ramp, and that essentially, I think, is the philosophy behind this New York Times article, um, that that actually perhaps is a, is, a, is a Western assumption that is wrong, that we don't need to give him that. That ultimately, from, at least from the perspective of the Russian people and arguably the Russian state, Putin has that under control. And in that sense, perhaps we should be going for harder and faster in trying to defeat Putin utterly. But anyway, um, I've, I'm conscious I've hogged the, hogged the microphone enough, so I'll, I'll stop there. I'm sure we won't, we've got other things to cover, David. <laughs> No, thank you very much, Francis, and thank you, Dom, for your thoughts as well. I thought it was important to devote some time to that because, as you said, it's it gets into the big questions that are the that that need to be answered by by the Western powers. So, thank you very much for your thoughts on that. Yes, uh, let's let's talk about some of the numbers that Russia, um, the, the casualty numbers that Russia is suffering. Um, Dom Nichols, do you want to take this? What's the latest on this? Yeah, so this comes out of today's. MOD, Ministry of Defence, Defence Intelligence report, they, they, they're just making the point that in their assessment, Russia have, have, have lost in the three months of this war, the same number of personnel that they lost in the nine years of the campaign in Afghanistan. Now, I mean, very different fights in many, in many, in mostly all, all ways. However, it's, it's important to note that the casualties from Afghanistan did have a, a, a domestic uh, blowback. They, they, they were remarked upon that did lead to um, a lot of these mothers' groups uh, f- forming, which which put huge pressure on the on the system at the time, and so they they're just they, they're not drawing huge conclusions out of it, um, but they're just making that making that observation. I mean, Ukraine numbers out of Ukraine are much higher. They say they, they they're estimating twenty seven thousand Russian um, casualties. We have learned over this campaign. We think initially we thought that um, that both sides would be you know, massively over and underestimating their their casualty figures uh, i mean russia haven't updated their figures for for months and you could argue well, why 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 should they why would they why would any force give away figures so i'm not saying they are you know they're wrong not to keep us all informed uh, but there's always a question mark over figures as, as a point i've made many many times however we have we have found as the course of this war has gone on that the, the, the figures and assessments coming out of ukraine have not been uh, as wildly off the mark, um, this is in terms of Western sort of military analysis, 
as in state analysis, the MOD and um, and the Pentagon, uh, not so wild, uh, not as wildly out as you as you might have thought in the beginning. However, there is a bit of a difference there. Um, MOD saying that um, British MOD saying that about, about fifteen thousand Russian service personnel have been killed in three months. Um, Ukraine saying twenty seven thousand. So a bit, a, bit, a bit of a difference to be to be fair there. However, um, the the more notable thing is that 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 number did start to have domestic uh, d- a domestic impact during the Afghan war. I mean, a, a different arguably a different society perhaps um, we have seen already in this war some some pushback um, in Russian society w- whether or not this will this will stimulate even more we don't know but uh, it, it is it is worth noting it, it is a, a benchmark um, that they've just passed and Francis I know you had some thoughts on the the impact of the losses in Afghanistan for the future or well, the end of the Soviet Union Yes, I mean, just very briefly, uh, it was very significant. The the I mean, obviously, the, the first thing to say it was a very much longer conflict, as as um, as Don was saying, it lasted nine years in Afghanistan, and and as we've of course in the West experienced with Iraq and Afghanistan um, in our own time, that when wars go on for a long time, it changes. However successful or non-successful they are, that duration has its own kind of bleeding effect on public morale and on attitudes towards war. But even so, um, uh, the, the the significance, I think, in terms of the impeding on the Soviet Union cannot be overestimated. Uh, it was hugely significant because it was seen as... Um, being at a moment when the Soviet Union was quite um, economically weakened, and so they sort of gambled on this uh, the, on, on the invasion in Afghanistan, and were quite publicly selling it um, as being this 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 uh, this great triumph um, that would that would um, essentially. Um, have big ramifications on on Russian power, but also would humiliate the West. Um, and that is, of course, not what came to pass. And and effectively, the it showed the fundamental military weakness of the Soviet state at a crucial moment when many of the other nations behind the Iron Curtain were looking carefully about their own futures. And um, as we've spoken about many times, I think another shift that took place is that it helped precipitate the downfall of several other several. Uh, several other Soviet leaders prior to Gorbachev. And whatever the power of the Soviet state may well have been prior to Gorbachev, Gorbachev's uh, becoming um, the head of the Russian state was the most significant thing that could have happened in terms of precipitating the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Iron Curtain, because what had shifted was not so much Russian power. I mean, I think that if it had not been Gorbachev in power and and the um, Berlin Wall had started to to collapse, then it may well have been possible for them to have put a stop to that. They could have the tanks in and of course there would have been much bloodshed but they had the power to do so what uh, the historian tony has argued which i've spoken about several times on this podcast is this fundamental point which is that what had changed uh, with gorbachev coming in was this shift in the fact that they actually no longer believed in the hardcore ideology soviet ideology they no longer believed in the soviet military power and as a consequence of that tried to reform tried to adapt but because the whole system was rotten ultimately it imploded now of course when we've been talking about in the context of this this conflict there are several echoes there and i think many people would hope that perhaps some sort of future leader in russia would have would share similar um uh, reluctances around uh, the foreign policy uh, and and the, the strength of the soviet state but we don't know but even so i think it's it, it's it's a significant thing and it's an, as i say an example of where when the world is watching uh, it was a milit- military humiliation and 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 one that had severe ramifications in term in ways that, w- that could only be measured in a long time afterwards 
Thanks, Francis. Dom, one, just one more question to you. We've got this report in that Russia is believed to have deployed uh, Terminator tanks to uh, the Donbass near Severodonetsk. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Terminator tanks? Um, is, are there myths to be busted here? What, what should we know? Yeah, I think there's myths to be busted all over the place. Um, so the Terminator tank is, a, is Russia's answer to tank vulnerability. So tanks, let's just go back a step. What, what is a tank? Uh, a tank is a, uh, is a military capability. It's a piece of equipment that is designed to, uh, it's designed to do a number of things. If you put three people in a room, uh, one who just wants mobility, just wants to be able to drive anywhere on the battlefield, one who wants firepower, as big a gun as possible, and, and one person who is only interested in protection to make sure that, that the tank, that the vehicle doesn't get destroyed. Put those three people in a room, firepower, mobility and protection, and they're going to argue it out. And there's lots of trade-offs and they will come up with a tank. And a tank is, is, that, is that military capability, is that piece of equipment that is the, is the optimum mix for, for a battlefield of, of firepower, which obviously the, um, you know, in the army is spelled F-A-P-A and pronounced far-par. But uh, firepower, mobility, and protection. So you can't you can't absolutely slather the thing in in armor so that it can't get hit from any angle by any, or it can be hit from any angle and and it will survive because you you just won't be able to move anywhere. You can't put a massive gun on it because the um, the the impact of firing those shells and the space inside the thing to have have enormous great shells is such that it would just you just shatter your suspension and equally you can't just have mobility you can't just have a have a sort of quad bike or a kind of range rover type thing um to go whizzing around the battlefield because you you won't be able to put any armor on it at all or a gun and it'd be completely useless so kind of in the same way that that um you know, a, don- a donkey is is a horse designed by committee. Um, you, you you have all these trade offs, uh, and you get a bit of firepower, a bit of mobility, a bit of protection. And I apologise for any donkeys who who may be listening, but you know, so firepower, mobility, protection—that's what a tank is. And a tank is there to to um, take ground. It can't hold ground. You need infantry to physically hold ground. But a tank is a is a great asset to have because it's vulnerable because it's big, heavy, old old lump. Um, as we said, the the majority of the armour is in the frontal 60-degree arc. So if you, if you sit on a tank, if the, if the tank turret is facing, facing forward, the barrel is over the front decks and, and pointing forward, you're stood on the top of a, of a tank and you hold your arms out at a 60-degree angle, that's where the armour is. So on the front of the, of the hull and on the front of the armour. Because if you put armour absolutely everywhere, as I've just explained, you just can't move you, and you're, you're then even more vulnerable. So armor is only in a certain number of places tanks are very vulnerable from the sides from the belly from the back and the and the turret so what they found is particularly from russia's experience in the chechen war in the early 90s but also to extend the georgia war in 2008 um, tanks are vulnerable and, and they are even more vulnerable when you get into urban areas urban areas are are tank killers they really are because you've got um You've got a subterranean environment. You have people moving around the the subways and the underground networks, or through the sewers and through other pipes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You've also got the elevation, so you've got tower blocks where people can fire anti-tank missiles down onto that turret. As I as I said, the, the turret is fairly. Um, it, it's not. There's not a huge amount of armor except at the very front of it, so it's very vulnerable from the top. So tanks in an urban environment are, are, are just, they just get knocked out very very easily. Um, and so you need to protect them. Now, you can either protect them by having um, a squad of infantry moving to the left and the right of the tank, looking for these uh, positions that might be firing uh, from above or down onto the tank or looking for people popping up behind it out of the, uh, the you know, sort of the, out of the, 
the uh, underground passages and, and so on and so forth. Um, but, it, but that is fairly manpower in, intensive. And you, you actually, if you're an infantier, you, you, you're more more interested in um, in looking after you and your mates and your and your mission than ma- making sure that massive lump of metal over there is is protected. So it's tricky. So Russia have come up with this uh, with this solution. This Russian tank supporting vehicle, called BMPT in, in, the, in the Russian language, um, the manufacturers called it the, the Terminator. I mean, yeah, fair play to them, come up with a fairly cool name. But, you know, if, you, if you're going to start calling something a Terminator or the, the Invincibilator or something like that, then you're just asking for trouble, in my, in my humble opinion. But there we go. So it's, be- it's built on a T-72 chassis. And as we've seen, they, they, I mean, they're great vehicles but they're you know, a bit old and they've they've had their problems in in ukraine so um a reasonably old chassis but on top of that you've got a thing that's basically got um anti-tank guided weapons and uh, automatic cannon and other other sort of smaller caliber uh, weapons and uh, what they are able to do is they've got particular elevations so they can fire a lot higher than a tank main main gun will main, a main gun won't, won't go up very high and um and certainly not the uh, you, you won't have the situational awareness. You won't be able to you know, physically have an idea of what's going on around you that you can um, uh, direct fire onto all these various uh, positions that might be firing back at you. So this 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 Terminator is designed to support tanks in an urban environment and be able to uh, pick out anyone who's who's trying to have a go at the at the main battle tank itself. But as I said, it, it. I mean, itself, it, it is. It is vulnerable. It's an old chassis, so it's just as vulnerable underneath and to the flanks and to the back, um, as the uh, as the tank is. It's there to protect, and also, I mean, for for all that there's an automatic cannon and you've got these anti-tank guided weapons, which are all very very capable munitions. But how much situational awareness do you have if you're inside this hull and you're battened down, so you've got the lid shut? I mean, how much can you see? Even with modern systems, um, you've got uh, cameras all over the place, and you can look up and down. I mean, you're going to be—they're going to be blinded by smoke and other battlefield obstructions, like you know, dust and just the crap that flies through the air when you start throwing heavy metal around. And how much, how much situation awareness do you have? How do you know when people are shooting at you, um, or where they are, and so on and so forth? So it is—it is an answer to a problem. It's probably not the the, the end of it all. Um, it's very easy to think, oh, my God, you know, they've, they've brought out this thing to defeat whatever it is, anti-tank guided weapon teams. But, you know, it, it's always swings around about these things. There's always a trade-off. Um, there's, one answer alone doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't solve all the problems. Um, so, yes, let's, let's take note of it. They do seem to be, um, there's a small number of these. I mean, I think only three. That's what uh, British Defence Intelligence have suggested. Only three of these vehicles have been seen in, in Ukraine, in the Severodonetsk area. Um, and um, so they might be very capable, but I mean, Russia losing tanks a la Zubla Platz. So are these three vehicles going to be able to, to turn the tide? Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but it is it is a thing. Unlike much uh, Russian, amazing Russian equipment that only ever we only ever see on the Victory Day parade and then and then never else. This is actually on the battlefield. So, you know, well done for turning up. Yeah, if it's as good, is it as good as the manufacturer would have us have us believe? By calling it the Terminator and saying it's they're going to support the tanks, and um, we'll, we'll wait to see. But we think it got into theatre around about uh, May the eighteenth, so so not 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 hugely long ago. But it's not as if it's added to a massive breakthrough yet. So so one to take note of and to watch. Uh, but we should be under no illusion that there's there's like everything, every piece of military capability 
There's all sorts of vulnerabilities and there's always that trade-off between what it's there to do and the vulnerabilities it, it has to protect itself to be able to do its, its main role. Thanks, Dom. That was incredibly comprehensive. Um, I think we're probably out of time now. So, Dom and Francis, can I just get your final thoughts of what should we be looking for uh, in the coming days this week? I just um, pick up on something. I think there's going to be some big um, ramifications from Davos, of course. So um, follow that very closely. Um, I said at the beginning of the podcast when talking about Davos that that it would only just happened and we were there was bound to be some more analysis that comes out that has taken place um, over the course of the recording of the podcast. Zelensky has said that Ukraine is in talks over establishing food corridors to export its grain, uh, accusing Russia of stealing supplies. We talked about the food security, so I'm not going to bring it up again, but I would just flag that this is yet another example, I think, of President Zelensky being proactive rather than reactive. Um, he can see, and this has been a, a defining feature, I think, of, of the Ukrainian handling of the war in terms of its dealings with the world and, and, and with, uh, with its allies. It can see what the issue is and what the concern of its allies are, um, as I say, proactively so that it can define the narrative earlier um, and not be have things done to it, but it seemed to be assisting with those priorities. And I think it's a very astute and, and, and is just another example of where it's been one step ahead of, of Russia from, from the beginning. Because as I say, I think, as we were talking about earlier, long term, the economic ramifications of this, the globalisation ramifications, the energy security ramifications of this, and the food security and, um, ramifications of this are going to be the big issues of, of the coming months and years. And it is very clever um, for, for Zelensky to be at the forefront of those conversations because, of course, he wants to be um, and to, to keep Ukraine as, as being one of the central proponents in, in, in Western discussions on, on all of these matters. So I would just, uh, just highlight that and say, yes, there's going to be some more interesting things to come out of Davos, no doubt. Out. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, Dom Nichols, would you like the final words? Yeah, thanks. So linked linked to the, the point Francis is making, I mean, it's slightly away from Davos, but the whole idea of food security really is coming to a head now. You see the Kremlin saying that it's the, the West that's triggered this global food crisis by laying sanctions on Russia. Um, you know, take take view, view on that if, if you wish. But this idea of of the the, the global famine that is being highlighted um, by by the UN and and many many others, I, I mean it, it is acute and it's a, acutely uh, you you could lay a huge amount of the blame for it right at Russia's door and the ability for Ukraine to get its ships out of um, out of Odessa and elsewhere and and through the Black Sea and what have you and it's now becoming a world issue if Russia continues this blockade. Um, of, of grain, and I know they're trying to get trying to get it through rail and road means through Poland, Lithuania, Romania, elsewhere, trying to get the grain out. But the the vast majority traditionally comes via the sea. And if if Russia is still blockading it, and you've got the World Food Program and and other other agencies highlighting the impact it's having across the world, then this is not this is not just a problem. Um, Russia's not just got a problem with Ukraine here. Russia's going to have a problem with 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 the world, and this uh, and it it. There could be. I can't see how Russia see this in in their interest to uh, to keep this going because they're, they're just inviting more uh, more sanctions and, and, and more action and more military support. And, be, and if that then gets fed into shoring up that 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 um, political support we were talking about earlier, that will go some way to sort of denting some of the knocks that that may have been um, that may have been invited by the by the New York Times article. So there you go. Wrapped it all up all up in a one. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free 
at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.